thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. reflection of Moses on these 40 years. And that's what we see as we begin the study of, this, um, of these chapters, 9 through 11 tonight. So in this sermon, essentially starting from verse 1 through 22, 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 22, Moses continues to address dangers to faith that might develop as a consequence of the conquest, a theme he had already begun in chapter 7 and 8. Here what he's focusing on is the feeling of self-righteousness that defeating the Canaanites might engender. What does that mean? He's basically saying that victory is no proof of virtue. Now that is a very important element in our spiritual life. In fact, I would wager to think that uh, for those of us who have managed to go beyond serious carnal sins, sins regarding the flesh or eating habits or any of those physical manifestation of sins, then what is waiting for us is precisely that danger, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness stems from an imprudent judgment an imprudent judgment that we make on our behalf. Self-righteousness stems from an imprudent judgment that we make on our behalf. What does that mean? I'll give you an example. It's a fairly typical example. When we start our spiritual journey and we take prayer seriously we might then spend some time in prayer every day. And one of those days, we might receive a consolation from the Holy Spirit. We have a sense that our spirit has been lifted up. We have a sense of peace. We have a sense that everything is going to work all right. And then that, spirit, that sense dissipates. Now, if at that moment we think or we say, I prayed well today. That is the beginning of self-righteousness right there. It's an imprudent judgment because we have appropriated the work of the Holy Spirit and made it ours. Or we have justified the consolation that the Holy Spirit has given us on behalf of our goodness. You understand what I'm saying? Why would we do that? Because 
My friends, this is how we tend to treat each other. We treat well these people who deserve to be treated well. That is inbred in us. It's a natural thing. Why? Because we were created to seek, love, serve, and be with God. We were created to seek that which is beautiful. So, naturally, if somebody behaves well towards us, we feel inclined to behave well towards them because we are attracted to the good. So, notice, it is a good. Right? It is a good. The problem is that that good can become quickly a stumbling block when we use it to justify our own worth. So, for instance, somebody comes and says, thank you for something we've done. If when that person says, thank you, we attribute worth to our action, that's building on self-righteousness. You understand? It is a danger that is ever so present with all of us and requires, requires all our attention and energy to defeat all our attention and energy to defeat. We cannot defeat on our own. We can't. It takes God's strength and power to help us defeat that tendency that we have to judge ourselves way better than we are. Now, there is an opposite, there's an opposite vice that some folks can fall into. And sometimes... Um, young people as they start their spiritual journey may fall into, and it is essentially scrupulosity. Scrupulosity is almost the opposite of self-righteousness because scrupulosity says everything I do is bad. There's nothing I do that is good. And somebody who falls into the sin of scrupulosity, not the sin, the, the vice of scrupulosity, cannot be convinced, almost cannot be convinced that anything he does is not sinful. They're the two coins, they're the two sides of the same coin. Both of them are tied to vanity and pride. Vanity and pride and too much self-focus. Too much self-focus on ourselves. So it's a very difficult thing to defeat. Uh, we tend to judge things outwardly. I'll give you another example. You might have a beautiful dream. I may have a beautiful dream. And in that dream, Mary appears. And says things to us. And we wake up and we are dazzled. And we then are tempted by an act of self-righteousness to quickly conclude infallibly that in that dream it was indeed Our Lady and she appeared to us. And secretly we're already canonizing ourselves. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is manifested by the way we are able to behave under duress. When things don't go our way, how do we react? If we're able to react with meekness and gentleness and joy, then presumably, presumably, we are doing a good job at keeping the self-righteousness away. If our prayers constantly evoke the mercy of God because we need, we, are in his, we need His mercy, we're probably working to defeat that self-righteousness. If we are convinced, absolutely convinced, that on a personal basis, regardless of what Adam and Eve, what Adam and Eve have done, we merit hell, 
And if, the, if God were to send us to hell, that would be just on his part. And there would be no reason for us to be upset. Because that's what we merit. We're probably doing a good job at defeating self-righteousness. The number one ally we have in this battle is our garden angel. So, if you do not have a deep devotion to your garden angel, probably you are, you are at a greater risk we all are at a greater risk of falling into this vice. Because it requires a second person to help us straighten up. Right? So Moses is already telling them, beware of that feeling of self-righteousness, because defeating the Canaanite is no proof of virtue. And then he's going to point out to them that Israel's own history has been a constant history of rebellion and rejection of the Lord. And those of you who were with us when we studied Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus, you would remember that. It happened over and over again. So the reason why God is pushing the Canaanites away and bringing them in is twofold. Number one, the Canaanites' own wickedness married that they would lose the land. And number two, the promise he made to the patriarchs. Those two things. So you notice then, therefore, that losing a land or having another people come into that land, none of those actions escape the Lord. And I'm not necessarily saying in all cases they're right or righteous. All that I'm pointing out to right now is that none of those actions that are happening out there in the world are escaping God. And if they are happening, it is ultimately to give glory to God. To give glory to God. He is going then to go into specific details. He's going to talk about the golden calf, which is the outstanding example of rebelliousness. And he's going to recall that at great length. He's going to point out to them that Israel violated the commandment against idolatry, in which almost led led to their extinction, because that's what God told Moses. And then Moses saved Israel. He interceded on our behalf. And we have seen how, when we studied that uh, uh, event in the book of Exodus, how the intercession of one man can save a nation. Now, in this context, I would like to read to you a, um, a little reflection from Pope Francis, which um, was written September 27th, and it's titled, A Christian is one who bears humiliation with patience and joy. In this reflection, the Pope recalled that despite Peter's profession of faith, when Christ announced his passion, death and resurrection, Peter told Christ that this shall never happen. Peter, Pope Francis said, is scared. He's scandalized no more and no less than so many Christians who say, this will never happen. I will follow you until here. It is a way to follow Jesus, to know him until a certain point. And this is the temptation of spiritual well-being. Spiritual well-being, another way of saying self-righteousness. We have everything. We have the church, we have Jesus Christ, the sacraments, the Virgin Mary, everything. A nice work for the kingdom of heaven. We are good, everyone. Because, at least we we need to think this, because if we think the contrary, it is sin. But it is not enough to have spiritual well-being until a certain point. Like that young man who was rich, he wanted to go with Jesus, but until a certain point. What is missing is this last anointing of the Christian 
To be a true Christian, the anointing of the cross, the anointing of humiliation. He humiliated himself until, until death, death to everything. This is the touchstone, the verification of our Christian reality. Am I a Christian of well-being culture? Am I a Christian that accompanies the Lord to the cross? The sign is one's ability to bear humiliation. The Holy Father went on to say that many Christians are blocked by this scandal of the cross and instead complain when they suffer any wrongs, thus betraying in a way that is contrary to the nature of Christ. A Christian is recognized by their capacity to bear humiliations with joy and patience. There are two paths that Christians may follow, the Pope concluded. Either a Christian who only cares for their own well-being to assure a place in heaven, or a Christian close to Jesus on the path of Jesus. So, very much a contemporary version of what Moses was telling Israel. The same principle applies here as it did before. It is when it comes to that, the, the crux of the matter is what do you do when you're irritated? When do, what do you do when you're wronged? How do you react? What is your initial impulse and what is your ultimate reaction? That's how you and I are judged on the basis of our Christian life. And the good Lord, knowing that we need training in the way of the cross, sends us these moments of frustration, these moments of humiliation, these moments of um, contrariety during our day to train us, to give us, op- to give us these chances, these occasions where we can practice that virtue of saying, I will follow you to the cross. And somehow, in principle, most of us would say, I will follow you to the cross. But it's a romantic notion. Because the, the cross is far away. It's in Jerusalem somewhere out there, 2,000 years ago. It's not right now, not right here. But when you take that notion realistically, is what happens to you during your day. How do we react to those moments? When we are pressed, when we are under pressure, under stress, when there is so much going on, how do we react? Do we keep? Do we safeguard? Do we protect our joy? Do we accept what comes our way with patience? Or do we fall into self-righteousness? This is how I think the readings of this chapter may prove very fruitful on a personal level if you were to look at them from that angle. You would see that there is much that Moses is saying that applies to us. And so in, in that chapter, Moses is reminding the Israelites about their rebelliousness. And it would seem as if Moses' statements typify the wilderness as a whole as a moment of rebellion. So in Moses' eye, he can see the whole walk through the wilderness as a constant moment of rebellion on the part of Israel. And that view will be later shared by the prophet Ezekiel in similar circumstance, when the people in Israel and Jerusalem were facing a mounting danger from the um, uh, <clears throat> from Babylon, and finally Jerusalem is going to fall. But then Hosea and Jeremiah would look at it a little differently, and they would still see, though, 
during this whole period, a wilderness, that Israel showed loyalty to God. And that is the consoling part for all of us. God knows how self-righteous we are. In, in the Gospel of Luke, he tells us, if you who are evil give good things to your sons when they, when, they, when they ask for it, when they give bread to your son when they ask, you don't give him a stone. If you who are evil, that is, that is how he characterizes us. Indeed, because apart from him and his grace, we are evil. We, we, we are surprised by the tonality of that sentence because we don't think of ourselves as evil. Because in our sense, evil is when we do something bad. Right? That's what would then be considered as evil. But what we don't realize is that evil is nothing more and nothing less than the absence of grace. That's what evil is. The absence of grace. Because evil is not a thing. It's not a thing that exists on its own. It's the absence of something. And that something is grace. So all that we need to do is lack grace and we are evil. That's simple as that. And without Jesus Christ, who has grace? So by definition, we are evil. So, nevertheless, even though we are so, God does not abandon us. And that's what is really important about <clears throat> the, the book of the Pentateuch. Because we can look at the Pentateuch as... <clears throat> what Israel is doing and not doing. We can focus on Israel, and we should, because it teaches us quite a bit about ourselves, but we should never lose track that it is not so much a book about Israel than it is a book about God. That despite the fact that they rebelled against Him, they murmured against Him, did not trust Him, built the golden calf, he did not abandon them. He did not abandon them. So therefore, the assurance of God being with us does not rest in how good we are. You understand? God isn't with us because we are good. God is with us because He loved us. And so therefore, when we look at the cross... We shouldn't just see the pain and suffering of Jesus Christ. We should also see the act of love. So when we look at the cross, we should hear Jesus saying, I love you. We should be refreshed. We should rejoice in that love. Here's the conquering love. Yes, he died on the cross, but he rose on the third day. And he loves us. That's the source of our hope. That's the source of our joy. That no matter what, He loves us. So, I don't want you to, I don't want us to focus so much on the fact, okay, I'm, I'm, we're self-righteous, so we're following all these things, just so that we can be focused on ourselves. Because that's not going to get us anywhere. It's unhealthy. No. It is simply to be pure in the sight of God. What is purity? Sometimes people equate purity with... Um, um, Proper sexual behavior. We've reduced purity to, the, to not committing an, a, uh, a bad sexual act. But that's not what purity is. Purity is nothing more than seeing ourselves the way God sees us. That's what purity is. 
there is nothing obstructing our view from truth. That's what purity is. So we do those things, we evaluate, we do our, our examination of conscience, we look at ourselves not to wallow in our own sins. There's nothing good in that. But then to turn to God, ask for His mercy, and receive His love. Worship Him in truth and in the Spirit. That's what He wants. That's what we give Him. But we cannot do that if we're self-righteous. It obstructs that flow of grace. Is that making sense? So, that's essentially what happens in chapter 9. And I'm not going to read this chapter because a lot of it also deals with the, um, the golden calf event, which we've already covered uh, in the book of um, Exodus. There is, nevertheless, a really important point that we're going to make here we did not cover when we did Leviticus. In chapter 10, beginning with verse 1 through 5, Moses recalls the fact that he went up to the mountain, brought the first two tablets, and broke them when they had built that golden calf. Then he went back up to the mountain, and God gave him two new tablets. And when he gave him two new tablets, this time around, he told them, he told him, to put them in the ark. The ark of the covenant. When he went up the first time, there was no discussion of the ark. It's when he went up the second time to receive the tablets that the ark is brought into the picture. And when we say the ark, well, the ark serves two purposes. In the ancient uh, Near East, when you establish a covenant, you typically put the terms of the covenant in a place for safekeep. And oftentimes you'll open them and you reread them. And if it is a covenant that was made with a deity, then you would put it into the temple of the deity, at the feet of the deity, to say, we've made a covenant with you. So that's one reason why you would have a tabernacle. This, the, the ark, I'm sorry, not the tabernacle. But the tabernacle came along, came with the I mean, I'm sorry, the ark came with the tabernacle, and the tabernacle brought with it the liturgy. Only after they had committed the golden calf. The liturgy was introduced after they've committed the, golden, the, the sin of the golden calf. Why? Because the liturgy is the medicine we need to fight idolatry. Worshipping God on Sunday is a duty. It's called the virtue of piety, giving to God His due. So if you come to Mass expecting something, you've got the wrong attitude. You're coming to Mass to give something. Whatever God wants to give back, that's God's prerogative. But we are Ask to come and give God His due, which is proper worship, because we owe Him worship. We owe Him worship. That's the reason for Mass, and that's why it is a mortal sin not to come to Mass on Sunday. Because essentially we're saying to God, not important for me to come and give you your due. I have more important things to take care of. But Mass is also medicinal. Mass is also medicinal. It was instituted by God as means for Him to provide graces, to have those graces flowing into our hearts. 
And the biggest of them all is the Eucharist. It's what protects us from idolatry. It's what protects us from these major grievous sins. It is the Eucharist and the celebration of the Mass, provided we have the proper attitude. We're coming here. We're not self-righteous. We're coming here to give God His due. We understand it's an obligation on our part to worship God. We're not doing it somebody told us. You understand? If we have the proper attitude of worship, then God, God's grace flow through us and then onto others. But if we are self-righteous and we're coming here because we are, um, we have a spiritual gluttony, that happens too. People can love to come to Mass for the love of Mass. That's not going to get us very far. It's not going to get us very far. So, he then reminded them of this, that the mercy of God, remember we said that God was about to destroy them, Moses interceded for, on their behalf, God answered by giving Moses another pair of tablets, meaning what? Meaning he's renewing that covenant, he's affirming that covenant, out of his mercy for them. What came with that was the entire sacrificial system. God does not require sacrifice. And he will say it in the Psalms. Right? Bulls and, and um, sheep I have not asked for. Right? David says it. Right? What God wants is what? A proper sacrifice is a contrite heart. Well, what does contrite heart mean? You're fighting your self-righteousness. You ought to be contrite every day if you really think about all the ways in which we are betraying God. So, what God wants is a contrite heart. Now, he knows these Egyptians, these um, uh, Israelites showed, showed him that they were more attached to uh, the golden calf, which is essentially the god Apis, which, who is the god in Egyptian mythology of, um, well, of parties. So, the god Apis is the god of partying. That's what they want. They want a big party. Right? And they got it. So God then told them, all right, now I'm going to give you the medicine for your overly attachment to all these goods, which will take you away from me. And that medicine is the liturgy. That's what Moses is reminding them in chapter 10. And then God, again, verse 12 through 22 of that chapter, Moses reiterated the fact that on account of Israel's rebelliousness, Israel has no cause to feel self-righteous. Now, notice what Moses is doing. Moses is not standing there and pointing the finger at them and saying, you bad people, you bad people, you're very, very, very bad people. That's not what he's trying to say. You could read these chapters and you could be inclined to read them as if he's standing there and he's abrading them, telling them how bad they are. That's not Moses. Moses has been with them for 40 years he carried them forward. He interceded for them because he loves them. And he, he's speaking as a father who has to let his kids now go. And he's worried because he knows what they're going to be up to. He knows that they are at risk of rebelling again, at doing the wrong thing. And so he's trying to remind them, 
you remember, you've done all these things in the past, so you shouldn't be self-righteous if God grants you victory. Remember the past. Look what you've done, and look how God treated you. Remember that. Why is he saying this? He wants them to act rightfully towards God. He wants their well-being. You understand? But because of this repetition, you almost get the sense that Moses is anxious. I'm not going to say desperate, but he's anxious. And he has reasons to be. Because what is missing in the case of Israel? Grace. Grace. There is no flow of grace for them to be able to live up to that ideal that he's asking them to live up to. But still, he is insistent that they should do that. Because even without grace flowing from the sacraments, if a man or a woman is righteous before the Lord, meaning not self-righteous, righteous, contrite, God will find a way for graces to flow into that person's heart. So, in chapter 10, he speaks about the Ark of the Wood, that, you, um, that the tablets were to put, be put into the Ark. And then in verse 12, I want to focus a little bit on verse 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? And there's an order to what he says in those two verses. One, fear the Lord. Two, walk in his ways. Three, love him. Fear the Lord. One, walk in his ways. Two, Love him, three, serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, four, and then keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. The order is not arbitrary. You can't move those things around. It's not a listing. There is a very significant progression in those two verses, which apply to all of us. Why does Moses start with fear the Lord? What, what is the gift of the fear of the Lord? Wisdom. Thank you. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why do we need wisdom? To fight what? The thing we've been talking about, self-righteousness. You see that? So first, you've got to fear the Lord. That means you know who He is, you know who you are. That means He is important every minute of your day. You may not know exactly what to do, you may not completely understand how the Mass works, you may not understand what has been asked of Catholics, you may not understand any of this. You may not love Him at this point. But you're going to realize, okay, very simple. There is heaven and there is hell. And the one who can send me to one or the other is the Lord. Very simple. Very basic. But very realistic. There is heaven and there is hell. Both are real. Very real. More real than this world we're in right now. Because this is passing. This is passing. But hell will never pass away. And heaven will never pass away. So therefore, you fear the Lord. No instructions, no knowledge, no nothing. Just fear Him. Now, if you fear Him, how do you show you fear Him? Remember last time when we talked about that, a couple of reading before? 
That's it. You're here by doing. You understand what that you're here by doing means, right? It means that you show that you hear someone by doing what they tell you to do. That's what you hear by, right? So notice, second, walk in his ways. You still don't understand. You're still not convinced. So example, you're a married couple, young married couple. You fear the Lord. Okay. You find out that the church says no contraception. You're not convinced. You don't agree. You have reasons not to. This and then the other. You ignore all of them. You just do it. That's walking in his ways. Jesus said the same thing in the Gospel of John. Follow me. I will lead you to the truth. The truth will set you free. In this order. So you walk in his ways. You don't try to understand and analyze. And I mean people who... Sometimes take 20 years to get into the Catholic Church. Because they have to analyze every comma and every point and every, they have to turn every rock in Scripture. That's one way. And God has reasons why some people take that long to get into the church. There are others. Yes, yes. That's it. And who did Jesus praise in the Scriptures? There are two people who were praised for their faith in the Scriptures. Two. The Syrophoenician woman and the centurion. And what did the centurion say? No, no, you don't have to come to my house. I have people under me. I tell them, go, they go. Come, they come. All you have to say is say it. It's done. That's it. He knew who he was. Therefore, he knew he could do it. So he acted as if God could do it. And Jesus praised him for his faith. That's it. Right? So that's the second thing. If you fear the Lord, the Holy Spirit will gift you eventually with that gift of obedience, which is walking his way. Just do it. Now, when you've done it for a while, guess what God bestows upon you? Love. Love. That's third. When you started fearing the Lord, you were concerned about hell and heaven. When you move up to the third level, That's not your main concern anymore. What you're concerned about is God. And then your failings and sins pain you, not on your account, but on His. Love. And when you love, you can serve. What did the the devil say? Non serviam. I will not serve. Because I do not love. When you love, you can serve. And then, when you love and when you serve, you keep the commandments. Because those commandments now are, have become your mold. You've been conformed into them. You've been conformed into them. That's why, thank God, in the church... There is, oftentimes, you find people who are well on their way to heaven, even though they've not been very much educated, because they just did all that. That doesn't require anybody to have a degree in theology. It requires common sense to begin with. Here's, I am, there's little me on this planet, in this huge universe. There's God who created all that. There's hell, there's heaven. He makes the choice at the end of the day. Not me, he. He does that. Okay, I better take that into account. Two, he says, does the, okay, jump, I jump. 
All right. So, so far, notice it's impersonal. I'm just obeying. It's an outward relation. But it's good. So, for instance, uh, the, the, the degree of Vatican II praises the attitude of Muslims towards God because they have that. They understand. He's the creator. I'm not. I'm the creature. And he has decrees. I'm going to obey them. So there's truth in there. The third element, though, is when you are in the church. That love we're talking about, that's a supernatural gift, charity, that you receive at baptism, that is fully engaged when you've demonstrated that ability, that attitude of obedience. Whatever you say, I'll do. Boom. Then God comes and stays with you, makes your heart his dwelling. And then from there, he instructs you secretly into the faith. He instructs all of us into this, the, the faith and then leads us to obey his commandments. That's what Moses is saying. Now, you can sit down and read these verses, just meditate on them, and you can see that here is a man who lived those steps himself. He had to fear the Lord before he agreed to do anything. Remember? When he saw the burning bush, it was curiosity that led him there. Oh, that's a strange thing. I'm just going to take a look. And God spoke to him nicely. Right? He wasn't afraid of God. No, 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 not me. I can't speak. Send somebody else. Uh, no, he was arguing with him, just pushing him away. And God has to rouse his majesty before him for Moses to start to learn to fear the Lord. And even a little later on, there was another event where God sought to kill Moses. That's in the book of Exodus. We studied that. And he was saved by his wife, Zipporah. Moses learned the fear of the Lord. And then he walked in his way. He didn't want to go to Egypt. He went reluctantly. And through it all, he discovered God's love. And then he was given God's commandments. So you can see, this is not a teaching that is outwardly given. It's not something that Moses just spouts out at this point because it makes sense. It's true reflection, it sense from his heart and his experience that he lived in the wilderness as he grew in his love of God. And so that's... That's the heart of this chapter. And then he reminds them, actually, this very interesting, verse 16, 17. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. It's a very strange image. But circumcision has always represented cutting away that which is not godly. And he goes straight to the heart. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. And then he says to them, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the terrible God who is not partial and takes no bribe. There's no partiality in God. And so, you were sojourners, you should love the sojourner. Right Now, that's something we we can reflect on. What is the thing that the, the... the sin that we battle? What is the tendency the, to vice that we have? Well, if you find someone else who is in that same state, the least we can do is pray for him. Ask God, intercede on the behalf of that person who is in the same state as you are in because you should understand what he's going through. Right? That's the very least. So, Love the sojourner, the one who was like you, amongst you, and treat him well. Then we move on to chapter 11. Here, 
in chapter 11, Moses reminds them of a basic reality. Conquering the Holy Land and keeping it is conditional. It's conditional. So, it is for us. No difference. Because it's a relationship of trust. Keep that relationship, God will bless you. Break it, God will curse you. He has no partiality, he doesn't take bribes. It's that simple. Now, what we mean by that is when you willfully reject him. You willfully rebel against him. I do not mean when you commit a sin and you're repentant and you won't go to confession. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about someone who decides, okay, I'm, I'm just going to do it my way. I don't want to be Catholic anymore. I'm just going to get out there, become something else. All right. When you cut yourself off those flow of graces, there'll be consequences. So, Moses, in this chapter, he is going to, well, in Deuteronomy 12.22, he essentially told them about the necessity to be loyal and obedient to God. And then here he urges Israel to realize that its future depends on compliance with his demand. Walk in his ways, love him, serve him with all your heart and soul. Obey all his commandments, which I enjoin upon you this day. Hold fast to him, echoing those same phrases over and over again. And the argument for loyalty proceeds in three distinct paragraphs. First, he repeats God's demand. Moses then argues that his audience should obey God because they have witnessed his redemptive and punitive power. They have seen what God has done in those 40 years. They were witnesses to it. They were witnesses to it. And this is why, throughout the history of the church, God has always given us these witnesses, the saints that he raised to the altar, to help us in every generation see with our own eyes what he's doing. Because we, as human beings, need to see, need to touch. We're all, in a sense, Thomas. We may not be as honest as he was, but we have those tendencies in us. We want to see, we want to touch. So he is telling them, you've witnessed all these things, so this is given to you to help you remember who God is. God is not staying away from you, far distant from your lives, and then asking you to react or to... um, Interact with something completely abstract. If you reflect on your own life, if I reflect on my my life, I can see distinctly those moments where God intervened in my life and did something I did not deserve. So, that memory, that remembrance, should spur spur me on to obey Him and keep His commandments. And Moses explained that the promised land... So he tells them, in verses 10 to 21, that the promised land they're going into, unlike Egypt, depends on rain for irrigation. Egypt had the Nile, so you had water, a plenty for you to uh, plant. But in the Holy Land, you depend on rain. 
and God will give them rain in its season, provided they obey. So it's like a tit for tat. You obey, I give you rain. You don't, I don't give you rain. So, so it is for us. Rain is, substitute rain to whatever you, you're seeking, you want, you're desiring. Whatever that thing is. Substitute rain for that. And you then see how God interacts with you and with me. Sometimes he will withhold that thing you want because he really wants to help you grow in humility, in, in help you defeat self-righteousness, help you grow in his fear, help you grow in all those virtues. So he uses this thing as a carrot. And sometimes he plants that thing in your heart and gives you an ardent desire for it, and he doesn't give it to you because it's the carrot that moves the donkey. And in many ways, we are stubborn donkeys, just don't want to move. So here's the carrot. Right? Because he loves us. He does that because he loves us. So I hope that as you hear me say this and repeat it, this idea starts to sink in that these difficult moments you have in your day are gifts from God. Because truthfully, that's what they are. Now sometimes, don't get me wrong, sometimes we on our own account can put ourselves into terrible situations. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who Pray, want to do God's will, obey Him, go to Mass, say the Rosary, do all, all the things, and then somehow they expect that because I'm doing all the, checked all these boxes, therefore, life should be better roses. And then things get worse. And they get terrible, and they get hard. And we say, well, God, where are you? And He's whispering, right here. But we're too busy screaming to hear Him. Why? Because he's giving us all these gifts that he's putting before us. We just, we don't want them. Because we had our plan. We knew what we wanted. And it doesn't correspond to what we seek. Hold on to your questions, please. Well, I'm going to take them, but not right now. So God doesn't give up. He does not give up on us. He continues. Just as he didn't give up on Israel. But these promises of rain... For obedience is so important. Because at the end of the day, what is, really, what is really the greatest danger we face here on this planet? For people of faith, for people who are already on their way to heaven, what is the greatest and gravest danger? Yes, how would you fall back and lose? What is the great obstacle on your way? Complacency, Complacency is one, yes, yes. It's attached to something else. We'll get to it. Yes. Lukewarmness. Not really. Let's say it's people who are really motivated by the faith. What is the thing that can cause them to lose it all? The good. The good. The good things of life. That's it. Complacency. Lukewarmness. The good things of life. Not if they are getting good, but the good things. This world is full of good things that God created. Yes? Somehow, because of original sin, they've become toxic to us spiritually. We can't take too much of them. In fact, not just spiritually, but physically. How many of, of, of us here can every morning get up and eat three pounds of sugar? Every day. Our bodies cannot take it. What God structured it this way, 
to point, to point us towards something, right? Yeah. As we grow in age, our diet should adjust. You drop the sugar, you drop the... Why? Because your body can... Why? It's God's gift to you. Not just for food. For everything else. Because that thing will t- keep you away. Take you away from where you need to go. Heaven. You understand? That does not mean, again, that does not mean that we, sh- you know, we should shy away from all that is good and then just you know, abandon it all. Some actually do. They become hermits and that's their calling and it's wonderful. For, the, for those of us who are in the midst of this life in the world, we need to learn a certain detachment from these things. Yeah? And so God helps us by sending us all these little things that annoy us or sometimes by sending us ill health or other issues or problems. It's his way of taking care of us so he can bring us home. So, if Israel is loyal and obedient, Israel will receive rain. If Israel is not, God will withhold the rain. Likewise, if Israel is loyal and obedient, God himself will dislodge the Canaanites for Israel. So, for instance, one example. If you recall, a couple of weeks ago, the Holy Father asked us to fast for peace in Syria. Right? What happened after that day? Right before that, there was an escalation, and the United States was in the verge of bombing Syria. And the relationship between uh, the United States and Iran were probably at their worst. What happened between now and then? Do you think we were able to do that? No. But yeah, we did it because we fasted. God answered. This is the power in the church. We're not using it. Because we're not people of the liturgy. That's the power of the liturgy. That's what the liturgy does. It can torque the world. The solution to the world is right here at Mass. But the devil is so cunning, he's convincing us that Mass is boring. So, that's essentially the principle God is putting in place. I will walk with you. I will give you the strength to do these things if you are obedient to me. What he told Israel back then, he tells us today. Same principle applies because God is faithful. And so in verse 1 through 9 in chapter 11, he reminds, Moses reminds them that they should love and obey God because they've seen the consequences of disobeying him. He reminds them that this generation's personal experience is something that no other generation will share. God did wonderful things for them. He's not going to continue doing that across all generations. So therefore, they have a great responsibility to share, to to remember this and act accordingly, and therefore help other generations to do the same. And the land of Israel, according to Moses, will be watered by God directly, by means of rain. God will provide rain only if Israel remains loyal and obedient. And so, why did God take him away from Egypt, where water was a plenty, to bring him into this land where rain was conditional? Well, because God is more interested in them as people and in a relationship he's going to have with them than he is in giving them rain. And so it is with us. Sometimes we wonder, I am suffering, I'm in pain, I have all these issues, and this other person who doesn't believe in God seems to be doing just fine. How so? Well, because God is more interested in you than he is interested in these other things that this person has received, presumably. We have to be able to see the gift 
in all of this, to see God's loving hand in the midst of these, the suffering, the pain, that God is right here doing this for us because he loves us and he's bringing us along. And then in verses 26 and 28, actually let me go to those verses, because Moses is going to summarize what we're going to see later towards the end of the book. Moses tells them, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, which I command you this day, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. And the reason why he, they have to physically set those, the uh, representation of the blessing and the curse, because those two mount, mountains are opposite, facing each other, and the Israelites are going to walk in the midst of them. And in the ancient time, when you wanted to seal a covenant, you would take a, um, an animal that you would sacrifice, and you would cut it in half, and then you would walk between the pieces. So by them walking between those two, the blessing and the curse, they were sealing one more time that covenant that Moses is telling them, I'm setting these before you. Yeah? And if you are disturbed about this notion that God curse, I want to help you think about it a little differently. Suppose God did not. Suppose God only gave blessings. We would not learn, and then where would we go? So then what are the curses there for? It's his mercy. Do you see that? Yeah, we have it backward. Because more often than not, we think starting from ourselves. Because we think we're the recipient of this thing, and that's all that matters. But that's not how it works. That's not how it works. So, At the end of this preamble that we're coming to, Moses has poured out his heart to his people, reminding them of these basic truths that they need to fear the Lord, they need to walk in his ways, they need to love him, they need to then serve him and obey his commandments. It's a journey of faith that the Israelites faced as they were to cross into the promised land. It's a journey of faith that each and every one of us face today as we walk along that journey towards the promised land, towards heaven. And all the steps that we take are uncertain. All the steps that we take have, um, may have difficulties and frustrations and setbacks and failures sometimes. If we train ourselves to every day to do these steps, fear the Lord, do what He asks us to do, love Him, obey Him, and we start to understand that these things fade away and we are in this conversation with God. The whole journey becomes a conversation with God where He is teaching us His ways until He gets us to heaven. God bless you. We'll uh, now say a word of prayer and then we'll take some questions. So we had a question a little earlier. Could you please repeat it? 
What is the difference between contrite heart and humility? Yes, it is important. They're not the same. Our Lady has um, probably is the our example for humility. But um, it'd be safe to say that Mary never had a contrite heart. Not in the way we do, because she never sinned. Contrition is a result of our recognition of the sin we've committed, and we're sorry for them. Mary never had that. Eh? So there is a difference. Although con- con- contrition requires humility, humility does not require contrition in a few exceptional cases. Our Lady, maybe St. Joseph. Maybe a few of the saints too. St. Gemma and uh, maybe St. Therese, I don't know. But that's essentially what we're dealing with here. You had a question earlier. Yes. So the question is, what if God, let's say, send a grace or a curse, right, to, to a person and this person does not get it. They don't understand it. Well, the truth of the matter is that God, when the curse is medicinal, will do it in such a way that everything is given for this person to understand. Because he's not a trickster. If, on the other hand, that person is past salvation, then this person will be more in obscurity and will not understand. In fact, we hear it from our Lord himself when he would give parables. He, for instance, the parable of the, of the sower and of, and the field. He gave that parable, and the apostles came in and said, explain to us the parable, because they didn't get it. And they were inside the house now, and Jesus said, to you, it has been given to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it is not. There's a clear distinction between those to whom it has been given and those to whom it was not given. I did not say they were beyond salvation. In that moment, it was not given to them to understand. But it doesn't mean that they were beyond salvation because the apostles are going to be among them and preach to them. So let, we don't conclude that because they didn't understand then that they were condemned never to understand. Because of their, own, or of their own choice, if they keep on saying no to God, eventually God will let them go. As long as they're alive, um, let's just put it this way, and, and without having to sort of uh, get too deeply into this, all that we need to care for is that from our perspective, we pray for them. Now, what God is going to do with his prayer, it is his business. That's it. And I think that is plenty for us. The rest of it is, can be disturbing and it's of no great use in most cases. So let's not get into that. The bottom line is as long as you have, you have somebody who's maybe outside the church, somebody who's not in the faith, somebody you're concerned about their spiritual end, you pray. You never lose hope. You keep on praying. And the rest is up to God. Yeah? But always, always remember this. Like I told you before, If you're in heaven at one point, if you and I end up in heaven and somebody we love is not there, somebody we love dearly is not there, how are we going to be happy? And the answer is right there. If our conception of heaven is self-righteous, that's when we think I'm not going to be happy. Because it's all about, I want heaven to be exactly how I think heaven is going to be with the right people for some of us. And I dare say, in some cases, more for women than for men. Heaven is like arranging for marriage. It's like my daughter is getting married and I'm arranging the party. And I'm going to make sure the people I want are going to be there. Well, that's not heaven. Right? So, always reflect on that. What if your children are not there? How are you going to be happy? 
the justice of God will make you happy. Yeah, that's key to our understanding of self-righteousness. We love self-righteously, conditionally. Sometimes we don't, we don't realize it. Yeah, well, I'm going to go to heaven, but also I'm bringing this and then yeah, and, and those people. And God forbid we also say, but I don't want that person to be there. So reflect on that. Reflect. Purify these intentions. Let go of all of them. Trust in God's mercy. Yes. How can a loving God sell somebody to hell for all, all eternity to suffer? Very good question. Love does not mean giving one person what they want apart from that which is owed to someone else. That would not be love. That would be tyranny. So if you have three children at home and it is Johnny's birthday and you brought Johnny a red car. But Bobby, his brother, throws a temper tantrum and starts wailing because he wants the red car. Right? Kind of a a similar situation, if you will. Right? Then you, out of love, you give Bobby Johnny's car. Is that love? Okay. Now, the counter-argument to what I just said is, well, wait wait a minute. God is God. He can give everybody their due. Yeah, with one exception. When what we owe is owed to God. You see, it's as if we're saying God should love us and not love himself. We want God to be so self-deprecating, he'll do everything for us and forget himself. That's not God. So when a sin is committed against God, against God, not against us, against God, that sin, the value of the sin is infinite. God said, I send my son to pay for it. He died on the cross for you. So, if you believe in my son, I'll save you despite the sin you committed. But if you you choose not to, then that which is owed stand, and therefore you will be apart from me. Because fundamentally, you separated yourself from me. And that means you're in hell. Because really, hell is not a place. I mean, it is a place, but let's understand it clearly. Hell is the absence of God. Imagine a place where God is not there. That's where all the suffering comes from. That's why. It is, there is no love without justice. And in fact, you can turn around and ask that same, same question to, the same, to that person. If they would conceive of someone who would do anything for any, somebody else, no matter what they ask, all the time, as love. And I think everybody will realize this is actually tyranny, not love. Yes. Free will is this uh, capacity of human beings to make decisions inside of themselves unimpeded by external forces. It's a mechanism that God gave us so that the decisions that we make are, in a sense, truly ours. Now, free will operates within creatures. So, for instance, the devil cannot read your thoughts. And the devil cannot make you do anything. And nobody can make you do anything. Right? We, do tend, we have a tendency to blame others for, you know, he made me do that. No, he didn't. You chose to do this. Okay? That's, a, that's where free will comes in. It's amongst creatures. But when, in, when we're talking in relation to God, 
God gave us free will, but God is not limited by our free will. So he can work with it in ways we can't even understand. Therefore, there is a fundamentally a marriage somehow mysterious between predestination and free will that works this way. Because God does not violate our free will. He gave it to us. But he's not constricted by it like creatures are. You always go to hell with your free will. But provided God sends you there. Hell, you and I can't send ourselves to hell. You understand that? Don't listen to anyone who tells you, you send yourself to hell. You don't. Because if you could send yourself to hell, you could send yourself to heaven. And then Jesus, you, you see that? Now, you have your personal judgment, and Jesus will decide. But guess what? If during this lifetime, you've worked on creating some friendships with some very powerful people up there, they'll come in and knock and intercede on your behalf. Moses interceded on Israel's behalf and saved all of them. Right? So it's not, a, it's not an individual business. It's not my hell. And it's not my heaven. I don't send myself anywhere. God, Jesus Christ, will judge me at the moment of my death. It happens instantaneously. And the judgment will come right there. Hell or heaven. Or purgatory. Hopefully for the most of us. Right? So, that's really key to understand. Free will is not powerful enough to break the lordship of Jesus Christ. I can't go one way or the other. So that's why I'm saying to you, even if somebody seems living a terrible life, don't give up on them. Because at the end of the day, the power of grace is far greater than all our sins combined. So we trust in God to be able to work with, not against, not break, the free will of that person and lead them home. Yes? So the question is about centering prayer. Um, what is it and what do we do with it? Um, here's what I would say. Obviously, I do not know what those churches are doing. and I don't know what's hiding under that label. It could be many things. Typically, centering prayer has roots in um, Far East practices. It is not of Catholic origin. It shares something similar to contemplation. So usually that's the word we would use, contemplation. Now, there are stages of prayer. The first one is simply a vocal prayer. Typically, prayers of petition. We come before Jesus and we petition him for something. Right? That's the first stage of prayer. Then, there is obviously mental prayer, where you're not, no longer talking, but your mind is focused and you're praying. Still, your mind is acting. Right? That's the second stage. Then, the third stage is contemplative. Now, we cannot attain contemplation on our own. We can't attain to contemplation on our own. God has to bring us there. And contemplation is characterized, and if you want to read more about it, the sources, the two main sources are St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. Those are two masters. Both of them are doctors of the church. Both of them are mystics. And both of them wrote extensively about the spiritual life. And they know a lot about it. And uh, for, for women, I would really suggest you read the autobiography of St. Teresa. Because she talks about her life and talks about prayer in very simple terms. Very accessible. 
And I would recommend to anyone who is attracted by that book to do exactly what she says. Don't try to understand. Don't try to overanalyze it. If she says, do this and then the other, set the book aside, start doing this and then the other. That's it. The autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila. Contemplation, when you're in a state of contemplation, you usually fight it because it doesn't make any sense. It's like suddenly all your faculties go into paralysis mode. Nothing is moving. You can't think. You can't move. And you think you're wasting your time. So you fight it. You want to go back to the mental prayer because you're doing something there. But contemplative prayer is of much greater value because God is working through you instead of you working and doing the work. So, centering prayer wishes, the one I know of anyways, is trying to bring you to your center, enter into yourself and then empty yourself. Which is fine. If, I mean, in principle it is fine, but there's a danger there because it is not focused on a person. It is focused on a process. And then there, in the spiritual realm, you're dabbling with spiritual forces. And, and, and the evil ones are evil. So you could be opening yourself up to things you just don't want to open yourself up. So in general, in general, my recommendation is simply to steer clear from <clears throat> any and all prayers of that type and focus on the ones that we know that are true and tried, that produce saints which are part of our tradition and which have clear value because they are centered on Christ, right? And at the end of the day, remember this. I mean, this is the, the biggest difficulty I have with centering prayer. It presumes to do what contemplation cannot do. In other words, it presumes that you can get to the contemplative state on your own, but you can't. And, and St. Teresa and St. John are emphatic. They're absolutely emphatic. We on our own cannot get to a contemplative stage. God has to bring us there. So there is a tendency to believe that you could do that when, in fact, you simply cannot. And so there's risk associated with it. I would say stay clear from it. Yes. Yes. But you're not con- con- it's not contemplative prayer. You're contemplating that is you're looking at. Very good point. Thank you. You can, be, you can be doing an Eucharistic adoration contemplating the cross or contemplating, meaning looking at. But you're still doing mental activity. You are working to do that. In a contemplative state, you do nothing. It's very counterintuitive. The first one is more of prayer of petition. It's a vocal prayer. Then you move into mental prayer. And there you're meditating. You're thinking about Jesus. You're, you're producing thoughts in your head to keep you focused. And that's what most of us are. We tend to do that. And God is very happy with us just doing that. But for some people, he'll suddenly move them up to that contemplative state, which is... Strange, if you've not experienced it, and then St. Teresa goes through a lot of details about why it is, it, 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 um, it might, um, our experience of it will be so strange because it would be as if you are in the middle of uh, a river and you're swimming upstream, and you're swimming upstream all the time, and suddenly, suddenly, the water starts moving you up. And what do you do in that point? Probably freak out. Because it's just going against nature. You know the water is flowing downstream and you're fighting your way up. right? And suddenly the water is pushing you up but it's still flowing downstream. 
It makes no sense. Well, that's how contemplative prayer can be for initially, until you start to understand the mechanism behind it. And God does mysterious work through it, not always clear. Right? Not always clear. So I would steer away from that centering prayer and stay clear on the tried and true Catholic prayers that we know and we trust and we love. Yes. Um, yeah, it's a very good question. So if, if, uh, if, let's say, they did not worship the golden calf. So Moses came down from the mountains and he gave them the tablets and uh, they gave them the Ten Commandments. And then what? Right? What would have happened when Jesus came? Because Jesus replaced the... Uh, Aaronic priesthood, the priest of Aaron, with the new priesthood, the priest of Peter, right? That's what he did. I mean, his priesthood, right? So would he have done that? Well, remember one thing. When the Israelites came out of Israel, uh, uh, came out of Egypt, every head of household was a priest. They could worship anywhere. They could offer sacrifice anywhere. God had granted them that liberty still because at that moment they have not committed such a grievous sin. So the whole Aaronic priesthood was a constriction. He took away that liberty, right? And kept it there. And when Jesus came, he restored it. Why? Because each one of us are priest, king, and prophet. Now, priest means we can offer sacrifice. And we do. We cannot offer the sacrifice of the liturgy. But we do offer sacrifice. Each one of us. Men and women. He opened it up to everyone. So what was before was actually restored in its fullest sense. Make sense? Okay. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.